Welcome to Office Hours with John Gardner. The John N. Gardner Institute for Excellence in Undergraduate Education strives to advance higher education's larger goal of achieving equity and social justice. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. This is John Gardner. Welcome to my office hours, uh, something I've been doing for 55 years. And uh, it's the most pleasurable part of my work, to say the least, in which I um, am often so delighted by the really engaging, stimulating conversations I have with significant people. And we have one of those today for you. It's a pleasure for me to introduce you to Dr. Peter Nwasu, who is, and I'm going to use a generic term here, he is the chief academic officer of one of the more than 20 plus constituent unit campuses of the City University of New York. And in particular, he is at the cabinet level at Lehman College, which is located in the Bronx. About 1.4 million people are in his service area. And uh, this is a really exciting place. I'm sure you're gonna hear about that in this conversation. But again, for my listeners, I wanna remind them, this is a series in which collectively the interviewer and the guest are in search of ideas regarding in innovation in higher education. This is a journey and uh, we're gonna have a, a part of that journey uh, today. This innovator is someone I met uh, in the late 2000, in the late second decade of the 20th century. And I met him when he had a title in a project that he was involved in that I'm gonna ask him to speak about. When he, he was what was called a digital fellow, a digital fellow. And um, that became a part of his identity for me. Uh, he's also a gentleman who has been organizing uh, consortial-like structures to bring together uh, multiple colleges and universities to talk about how in the digital era we can uh, increase student success. Uh, there, there are other things that I could tell you. He's a, a gentleman who has international perspectives on higher education. We may get into those today, but anyway. Dr. Nwasu, a pleasure to have you. And I would like you to, if you would please, just give a kind of introductory flavor for the journey you've been on uh, as an innovator in higher education. Where'd you come from? How did you get into this? Thank you very much, John. And thank you for the very kind introduction and uh, certainly uh, for the opportunity to engage with you uh, in this important work. As you probably know, I come from a modest income family, uh, one of five uh, children and the first indeed in the family uh, to go to college. And I came to the United States and you're right uh, about my uh, international background. I came to the United States uh, more than three decades ago as an immigrant student. Like many of those new immigrants who come to the United States, uh, uh, you tend to have this push and pull of the experience that at the end of the day, upon completion of your education, you begin to wonder, do I need to go back or do I need to stay? And at the time I came, there were challenges in Nigeria. I come from Nigeria. We had a military government and we had had a series of military dictatorships in the country. And as a consequence of that, that actually informed the decision to stay longer. And here I am uh, in the United States. 
But the important question is you asked is where did I begin? That actually has been the really the framework uh, around uh, which really drives this work that I continue to do at the, at the university and the role of faculty members in really shaping that work. And I recall as a grad student, and I still remember his name, Dr. Uh, William Starosta, was in a class in political communication. And I had done a paper for that class. And I remember him asking me to submit the paper for a conference. And I did submit the paper. Of course, uh, as a student, you wonder, would it be accepted? It was really the conference of the Association for Education in Journalism and Mass Communication that was taking place in Washington DC at the time. Uh, the paper was accepted, but not only was that paper accepted, it was also accepted as the best student research paper for that, for that year. And I was still in grad school. I recall uh, going to the business meeting. Uh, you're called up, you get a, a certificate, you get uh, <laughs> this very little plaque to give you. And then at the end of that uh, business meeting, I recall a faculty member, a woman actually, uh, that I learned was the department chair at Cal State Sacramento. Uh, it was she, uh, Dr. Shirley Biaggi, and those names remain very important to me because they have shaped the, my trajectory. As she asked if I could actually have coffee with her, that conversation led uh, to, would you mind coming to my campus in Sacramento uh, to present that paper, which I did, they paid the way. And ultimately, uh, at that meeting in Sacramento, uh, she approached me with a position at the institution. There was also another uh, person uh, who was in attendance at that presentation, um, Dr. David Martin from Communication Studies, also approached me and asked that I apply for a position. Of course, I did apply for both positions, got offers. I, I decided to work in Communication Studies. And that has been the trajectory uh, the role of faculty members, the role of individuals to really mentor and change our lives. And I'll say this, uh, if you come to my office, I have a pair of shoes uh, that I wore when I came to this country. Those pair of shoes remain with me. They're actually encased uh, in a glass pedestal in my office. And what that shoe really represent, those pair of shoes represent for me is a powerful reminder of the journey we immigrants make to come to the United States. And then we would have thought that this young man who started his career life in, in where we, we be, he began would today become the chief academic officer, the number two person at an institution. But for that education, but for the faculty members, for those individuals who were there to mentor and guide me, I would not be where I am today. And I've always said to our students, if you work hard, if you do what you're supposed to do, education transforms lives and it ignites new possibilities. And for me, that has been the driver. Those values that I acquired from my parents, from my family, from my background, from my professors, those are the values that have shaped me. And I'll say institutions that I have selected to work in for these many years are institutions that serve historically underrepresented students. And, and that's been the passion that I have. They remind me of who I am. And I, I, I have joy in serving in those institutions. Um, I'd like you to illustrate that very specifically uh, by describing the extraordinarily uh, diverse and complicated dynamics, uh, demographics 
of Lehman College, where you serve now. Just give us a flavor of many Americans listening to this that I, just I, might I, remember Thank you very much. Uh, and you did mention the population of the Bronx, which is one of the mentioned 1.4 million people that live in the Bronx, majority immigrants, immigrant population. Mm-hmm. One of the five boroughs uh, in the borough of, of the Bronx, uh, Lehman College occupies a very tiny uh, space uh, in this area, 1.4 million of the 8.9 million people that live in the city of New York. Majority of our students are students of color. Uh, 50% uh, Hispanic students, 33% uh, uh, black students. So you, you get a sense of, 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 of that student population. Uh, majority, many of them are immigrants. A majority of first in their, many of them are first in their families to go to college. Uh, average student population is 25 uh, with, with mostly transfer student uh, institutions. 60% of our students are transfer. They come from the Bronx. They graduate. Uh, they remain in the Bronx. 90% of them are in the, in, in the whole of the city of New York, 80% of them in the Bronx. And they work and they contribute to the economic development of the area, of the city, and of the region. And part of the role we've played at Lehman College is to serve as an anchor institution in terms of that space, uh, where just only 27% of the population have somewhat of a college education or a college degree. And our goal at Lehman has been over this past five years to really advance educational attainment uh, in the area through an, a very important program, an innovative program we launched in 2017 called 90 by 30. And I'll talk about that uh, in a moment. Well, that's really helpful. Uh, and, you know, I would argue that um, your institution now is the real America, as well as the future of America. It is. It and, is. Uh, it's a very inspiring place to uh, uh, visit because while you do have many unique backgrounds, you're all coming together for a common purpose, and that's that's what you lead. Um, so you you've spoken now. You've mentioned multiple times, even in the few minutes we've been together, the power of faculty mentoring. Uh, how do you, as a leader of the, you are the leader of the faculty. That's the most important thing you do, and you you were a faculty member yourself. You've done this. You have empathy. How do you uh, create a, um, a college where your faculty get encouraged and rewarded for mentoring students and each other for that matter, senior faculty mentoring junior faculty? You know, that, this, that, that, that work remains one that is ongoing. And I think part of the, of the, of the uh, I'm glad you actually asked that question, is really how you plan and integrate that in uh, the institution's mission, but also in a strategic plan itself, because uh, including that uh, that particular work in the strategic plan then uh, establishes the framework by which faculty and then, of course, other campus leaders uh, do the work. This past week, uh, we continued on the initiative you and I had worked on uh, when you came to visit our campus in, in October last year. Uh, by holding um, a leadership retreat uh, for our campus leaders, uh, providing them data. You ask, how do you actually engage in that work? They they look at data, 
And uh, the data, of course, is uh, looking at the enrollment trend over the last 10 years, looking at retention numbers, focused on transfer student population, looking at uh, graduation rates as well, and asking what can faculty do, what can units do. And we did this, of course, by looking at school based data and department and program based data. For many of our colleagues, that's the first time they look seeing that data. And so, and they were able to have substantive dialogue over uh, 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 a a really significant amount of uh, time we allocated to them, two to three hours to have those substantive conversations and then begin to think of why are we where we are? How do we actually navigate this to provide further support to our students, mentoring, advising, and uh, other resource support that might be needed in order to advance that mission of educational attainment in the region? What I have tried to do here uh, is to provide central coordination, the, the very concept of centrally coordinated, locally directed. And so that's been the mantra uh, that has always guided my work because people have to take ownership in terms of that work. And when you empower faculty to have the data, then it begins to actually help them to engage in that process. The other piece of work that we've also done, as you recall, as you probably recall, is the uh, data we have we have analyzed on gateway uh, student, perform- student performance in gateway courses and then pulling our faculty to look at that data based on student pass rate in those um, general education courses and providing professional development opportunities that have allowed our faculty, those who are participating in those, to redesign those courses and to teach those courses mindful of the student population we serve. They are different, they learn differently, And if they do understand that particular diversity, then of course it helps also allowing our students to make progress uh, in in that regard. So mentoring comes in multiple forms is the point I'm trying to make uh, with my response to the question you asked. Listening to you and knowing you as I do, in many ways I think of you as a humanist, but you're also a a practicing social scientist and you're a researcher, you're very interested in data. So yeah, I am. I'm, I'm concluding that there's not any, an incompatibility between your being data-driven and the humanist that you are. I'd like you to give our listeners, if you would, please, maybe an example or two of the kind of data that you especially want to get faculty to consider that they may not have been considering before. Because as you and I know, certain types of data will move people, will motivate them. And it can cause a kind of a create a kind of epiphany, something they hadn't realized about their own work. Would you give our listeners, uh, you know, if you were leading a, a seminar for your faculty, what then you your institutional research team had given you hundreds of data points, which ones would you want to po- point to most significantly? You know, it's uh, I'm so glad you asked that question because the work I've done has been pretty very consistent in terms of looking at data. The real question is what does what do data mean? Yeah. But you, you can look at data in isolation. You also have to look at some of the other, other pieces and then use the data to then pull the campus community together and then have, have everyone have a say or, or ownership of the multiple dimensions of strategies that all collectively contribute to advance retention and graduation. That's always been the approach that I take. 
so that if you look at initiatives that I pursue, those initiatives are multifaceted in terms of strategies because I involve a lot of you know units. You might think that IT is not is not part of, but they are part of it. You might think that um, if a student doesn't have uh, the the digital tools to learn. They don't have the computer. They don't have the Wi-Fi. It's going to have impact. And so, yes, uh, when we began at, um, when I was at Clark Atlanta University, I was looking at our graduation rate. I was looking at our retention numbers. And at that time, our retention was 66%. And our, our graduation rate was 38%. And I knew that this was something at a private institution uh, uh, that if we didn't really move those numbers as well, then we will keep losing students. And so part of the initiative I embarked on was really this broad notion that uh, allowed me to strengthen retention. We, we call it 77 in 27. And what that really meant was that we had to grow retention uh, to 77% by the year 2027. It was a very simple way to engage the campus community in an understanding of the value of retention. When you, when you have students who are taking biology courses, but they're flunking, there's a 40% pass rate in biology. That means the other 60%, you're losing them. And if they're so despondent, then they don't stay. Many of those students are students who want to go to medical school or go to other professions and so on. And hence, this idea you've talked about digital learning. And that's how I got involved uh, in that, because a similar work had been done. And I had moved on those at my last institution, Cal State Fullerton, Mm -hmm. uh, where we embarked in cost redesign in order to move uh, with technology in order to move uh, student pass rate in a number of areas. And so that concept was a driver. Now you asked about how do you get faculty to buy into the data? Uh, so when I looked at the data provided by IR, it became very clear to me that I needed to bring, <laughs> I didn't share it with the whole campus. I brought in what I called um, um, faculty members who had influence at the college. And some of them were senior faculty members teaching those courses. They came to my office. The initial reaction was, oh, those students are not prepared. It's not us. It's what I tried to do was to say to them, it, you are not the, it's not you. This, nor is it the students, you know, you, you take away the blame factor from them uh, and, 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 and then pause the conversation in a way that, or frame the conversation in a way that allows them to think of solutions as opposed to uh, pointing fingers. And I think that was a very important conversation in my office. And from there, I was able to secure buy-in from them. And then we began the initiative that I that I that that actually led, and was fortunate to be part of the Gates Foundation to further advance and accelerate that work. Some of those faculty members became faculty champions. Not only did I participate in that initiative, but also they began to write actually grants as an interdisciplinary group that focused attention on a number of gateway courses. We started with one, then two, three expanded, covered more students, and then it expanded uh, uh, to uh, additional 18 uh, uh, courses, uh, nine courses with multiple sections, sorry, uh, with multiple sections reaching more than 2,000 students. And they're securing over a million dollars in grants 
for that purpose, hiring, you know, supplemental instruction instructors. We did a lot of things all together, but that's just one piece of it. So how you frame the data does really help a lot in terms of driving the work. That's also the approach I'm taking here at Lehman College and the approach also that we took uh, at uh, Cal State Fullerton, where similar work was also done. I want to make sure that everybody heard that phrase you used uh, because it's so important. You said that you strive to, quote, take away the blame factor. That's correct. And uh, so when you convene faculty to see this illuminating data, it's not to illustrate that they are the problem. That is correct. As you said, that they are the solution to they and their colleagues are the solution to the problem. And no, no, our students the problem. He, you know, which is right. what I, what I, what I'm. So it's it's really important to to not point fingers. I I have a very strong belief that students can learn. I also believe very strongly as an interculturalist by training and a person who has studied how different you know cultures learn that our students, you know, uh, from particularly underserved population groups learn differently. And if you factor that in the design of the instructional delivery, then those students tend to do well. And it's, it's so, so those are things that I have. And of course, you know, as faculty members, we, we get our PhDs. Uh, nobody taught me how to teach when I went to Howard University. <laughs> You know, so you 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 know you have to learn how to also teach, uh, you know, depending on the student populations that we serve, and they learn differently. And I can say that they 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 actually do well in those classes. Um, I've noticed that um, you, you talked about uh, being lured to Cal State Sacramento, and then you went to Cal State Fullerton, and then you went to Atlanta. And I'm going to make that kind of an exception from it. Now you're in New York. You, you, so you left, you most left of those places, you left the handsome suit you're wearing right now. You're blue. <laughs> uh, now you were when you were in Atlanta. Atlanta's kind of blue too, even though you were at a um, historically black university. Yes. But I'm, you know, I'm thinking, you know, here's this man. He's been working his whole career in the United States anyway, in these blue regions and. You know, uh, how would this fly in the red regions? And uh, we, we need it there as well. I'm not urging you to take a job in a red region, although you've got red in your tie there. You've got red and blue. That would. Uh, uh, so I, I think that what you're talking about is far more applicable than just uh, public universities in blue states. Okay, That is very correct. It's much more. We wouldn't want our listeners to think otherwise. No, no, and you're very right. I, I, and I, I don't want to create that impression. And you, you, you know, I was also at Cal State Northridge, and don't forget that I was at Tennessee State uh, as well, which is um, um, kind of governed by um, uh, um, red state and blue state governors. When I was there, it was Phil Bredesen, and they, you know, then we had another governor who who, who is a Republican. So. The, the, the you know, innovation works when you when you're talking about advancing educational attainment, and you're talking about looking at data and trying to understand why students are not doing well in particular classes, because the data does say they are not doing well. But then the question becomes, what's causing that? 
And that's really where the conversation with faculty comes in. What I've learned is that when the faculty are shown the data, but they do respond in very positive ways, in a way that also allows them to rethink how they teach in a class. What those of us who are in administration have to do is to provide a vital support necessary, create the enabling environment that allows the faculty member to rethink the instructional modality and to incentivize them to do so, which is what I have done. And then they go back and it's a pilot. They deliver that as a pilot. It's not a blame on, on how they taught the class before, nor is it on how the students are learning, regardless of the context, whether it's in Oklahoma or anywhere. They would see improvement. And where it doesn't improve in that pilot, then they come back and ask why, why, why. I'm also an assessment person. You know, so you're constantly assessing, you know, why, why, why. And then you go back again and, 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 and then you keep working. I don't think any of our faculty members or any of us in higher ed goes into this wishing students to fail. <laughs> we want to make sure they're successful. And I think that's the, uh, for me, that's the moral obligation we all have, that when students come to us, they come to us to guide them. That's why I share the example of my beginning at Howard University as an immigrant student. But for those faculty members, I mentioned their names. There's another one, Dr. Laura Fleet. She passed away a few years ago. May I so rest in peace. Those faculty members, and you see how I remember their names, <laughs> even years after uh, they have been very pivotal uh, in, in, in where I have found myself, which is really the driver uh, for the, this work that faculty play central role. In addition to staff, what happens in the classroom is so critical to this work that we do. I, I really love the, the metaphor you used earlier of your shoes, the ones you have under glass in your office. And I'm, um, and I'm relating that to what you just said about the moral obligation to students. And as I listen to you, it's very clear to me that you have um, a very concrete, specific philosophy of education that you're bringing into this. And uh, if you haven't already, I would urge you to take those shoes occasionally to meet, to presentations you may give to students and ask them to compare the shoes that you see when you hold them up to what you're now wearing. You're very stylishly dressed gentlemen. And, you know, it's a kind of a, a graphic way to, you know, represent the journey from these shoes you came in. You know, we all think about following in the steps of others. And that's the kind of leadership you're talking about. Of course, when you work with faculty, you have to show that you've been in their shoes too. And therefore, you'd be even less likely. I, I have shared that. Thank you for that suggestion, John. And I have shared that on the, at the campus. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, when I joined Lehman in 2019, there was a reception held uh, for me by, by, by the um, college president, the university-wide, the system-wide provost was there, then system-wide provost, the wife of Jamie Diamond was there. And there were lots of council members, city you know, council members and officials that were there the campus community and I did share that those pair of shoes and and of course every time I look I look at them and I share them they bring tears but also they bring joy at the same sure. time and I've shared it with students uh, I speak about it all the time um, um, I have pictures of it uh, but they, they're a powerful reminder for me 
about the power of education to transform lives. It is also about the power of education to ignite possibilities. And I tell the students that you too can be provost, you too can be chief academic officer, you too can be a medical doctor, you too can be president. Uh, and, and they'll walk into my office and they say, what's the shoe for? And then I tell them this, oh, okay. And then, and then even faculty members will also come to my office and say, what is shoes for? And I share that with them. And then they start sharing their own stories of their parents when they came to this country. New York is a magnet. And, and so it's, it really connects us about the, the importance of this work and where we all began. Well, your ability as an immigrant now, I mean, we've kind of become a U.S. citizen and a, an educator here uh, of real influence. Uh, it gives you empathy that I don't have in some ways because I've never lived in another country that experienced civil war or, or warfare period, at least the conventional kind of warfare. And you and I were reflecting earlier that you have students who have roots to the Ukraine and other conflict points in the world. And um, how does um, how does how does that factor influence um, the student culture of Lehman, particularly at this time? It really it really does. I had a meeting with uh, the SGA president, and I meet with them regularly uh, to talk about issues. As you probably know, we have oh, a, which president is this? Was that the uh, student, student government right? president? Yeah, yeah. a student government president yeah. Emil. Uh, as known, I, 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 I meet with him regularly. And our students are pretty very much uh, are centered on these issues of equity and social justice. And uh, uh, everything that affects one elsewhere affects them uh, as well. Uh, Emil himself is, a, is an immigrant from uh, Benin Republic in West Africa. Uh, B E N I N. It's no, it is. You know, I have a friend who was just there for three weeks. Yes, and so you can see the last president, as student government president we had, was from the Caribbean. So they come from different places, uh, and so they're able to connect. Um, uh, just a few days ago, the chancellor uh, fellow, uh, fell, uh, our chancellor um, uh, fellow, I know him. I know him. Yeah, Rodriguez. Sent a, a communicate to the campus community. What was striking about that communication was that there's no part of the world that you don't find in the, the city of New York. And we have a large Ukrainian population uh, that lives here, the largest Ukrainian population of any in the United States. And uh, many of them come to school uh, uh, at city. And so it was really a message of solidarity from us. And as I think I shared with you earlier on, my parents experienced why I was a, I was a kid, really, really young kid. And I, I saw I saw the imagery of war. And I've never been a supporter of it in any shape form or kind. I'm a pacifist, I think I said. I saw the imagery of war, I saw the destruction, and it never goes away even when it's over. And the Nigerian Civil War has been over since 1970. But those I'm wondering how many of our listeners will say, 
be thinking that they've never heard anybody admit before that they're a pacifist, let alone ever known anybody that's a pacifist. I do, not, I, I, do not, I do not like wars. I just don't, you know, there are ways to resolve conflict, but we also know that they happen. And what has happened with the invasion of a, of a tiny little country, uh, that they're simply responding, they didn't start this conflict, they're simply responding to it. It's pretty tragic. And the very fact that international communities come together uh, to avoid uh, and to say never again, uh, it's, it's very commendable. I watched the president's remark to, the con- to Congress last night, and I was, I, was, I, 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 was, I was moved by that as well, including that the ambassador of Ukraine there. So, so the, it, the, it, it does not make sense just because one is a powerful country uh, to, to really uh, not find a way to resolve conflict. Um, I described you at the beginning of our conversation uh, with a title you had in a project um, in which you were labeled a digital fellow. And I know that you organized a regional consortium for educators from um, historically black colleges of the Southeast to come together to talk about the role of digital technology. And again, hearing you as a humanist, but also knowing you also believe in data and digital learning. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about how your belief in the potential of digital learning fits in with the rest of your educational philosophy? You know, part of it, well, thank you for asking that question. I was part of the 31 chief academic officers that are, that were selected for this national convening. Hence, when we selected, we were tagged digital fellows mm-hmm. or its foundation digital fellows. But it was an initiative also uh, uh, sponsored by the Association of Chief Academic Officers. Gates Foundation funded that initiative through ACAO, this association. I'm now on the board of the association and I've been for a few a few years. Uh, but what that initiative did was to really have us look at our data. Was really the goal was to improve retention and graduation through implementation of uh, uh, digital learning, essentially utilizing digital courseware um, through the idea of artificial intelligence uh, built into these um, uh, platforms that allow students to uh, become familiar with the, with course content in a number of areas, math, um, chemistry, biology, and then the students learn at their own pace. It's individualized learning. And to the extent, uh, depending on the way that platform is configured, the students learn at their own pace and they don't, they can really go on to the next module until they have become, they have mastered that module. It also changes the role of the instructor. You know, the faculty member does not come into the class and then simply spews out information and expect students to, you know, memorize and so on. What they're looking is that they're tracking our data uh, from the uh, platform that tells them how each student is performing. And so depending on which particular module that is a bottleneck to students, the faculty member then comes to class and says, 
is I think this is a, an area where I need to provide additional uh, clarification and he or she will facilitate conversation to make it clearer to students. I noticed that many of you are not doing so, so, so well here, you know, so, so, so well. So she or he is facilitating the conversation in instruction there. And the students go back and continue their work and at their own pace. And what I learned from that process is that our students' pass rate actually went up in those three courses, the biology, math, chemistry, where we implemented this as a result of my participation in the Digital Learning Fellows. I came back, again, using data, you know, where, we, where I knew we, I needed to have significant impact, then pulled in faculty champions. I, you know, I'm still in com, you know, communication with those champions, and then had them work with the department chair, and then they redesigned uh, 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 those courses, and then they taught those courses, and then they watched students' performance. I also engaged those students. Allowed us to rethink how we, we our teaching and learning centers was configured at the time, essentially. <laughs> you know, I pulled it down and, and, and restarted the teaching and learning center in a different way. Allowed me to begin the conversations with the faculty senate and my office and the teaching and learning center on innovative pedagogies. And so every uh, semester, every other semester, uh, they, they, these, my office and the faculty senate and the uh, teaching and learning center come together to have a half a day conversation on teaching, deploying digital learning and other, uh, other mechanisms. Allowed me also to get a, an interdisciplinary group of faculty members to rethink um, uh, gateway courses that focus on broadening minority participation in STEM. And then they wrote grant proposals to uh, the National Science Foundation. Initial one was three proposals. We got funded for two of those at $650,000. And then they went on to write some more. And so they began to work as a, as a community of scholars it was really fascinating work. The final thing that I would say was that work was also what led to the summit that we had in the Southeast United States in Atlanta of uh, 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 historically black colleges and universities in the Southeastern United States that serve a combination of students uh, totaling over more than seven, 75,000. And we had um, over 40 I think it was over 40 or 50 participants, including their, their chief academic officers, their presidents who came. You were there uh, as, as a keynote speaker. And then I also had Casey Green. I had a lot of other faculty members and other colleagues who were part of this digital fellows program from other universities. Um, uh, my colleague from University of Kentucky in Pikeville, she came. And there were others that I brought in other chief academic officers to, to help facilitate that work. It was really the beginning of a conversation on how to deploy digital learning as a potentially powerful tool to, to uh, help student performance. So I still believe in it. Um, I'm doing that work here, working with a university system-wide office uh, in extending uh, digital learning to some of the things that we're, we're trying to do in terms of pedagogy. And we've just begun to collect uh, data. We, 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 we're, we've just admin, ad, we're administering a survey uh, to all of the campuses to learn about what they're doing you know, to do an inventory 
of of that work on on a camp on a on a on a system within a system that would then help um, guide uh, the work. I have seen the data on our students' performance in math at the community colleges on our own campuses. And that's one of the reasons why I thought that, you know, if we employed this tool, these platforms, uh, they can be a game changer for us in terms of retention. And when students uh, do well, they stay. It's also a very powerful tool for us in terms of our 90 by 30 goal. And that 90 by 30 initiative I mentioned was really the colleges, Lehman College's effort, you know, innovative approach to uh, increase graduation from what it would have been by the year 2030, which would have been 45,000 new graduates to 90,000 by the year 2030. And we are one third of our way uh, to meeting that goal. Uh, And we still have, uh, um, so so we're actually doing pretty well in terms of where we are. And we shared this uh, progress to date at our meeting last, uh, leadership retreat last Friday. Well, I trust it's uh, obvious to a number of our listeners that uh, you're certainly not um, um, coasting now that you're in this, as you've described it, a number two role. And that uh, I find no surprise to, to learn that you're thinking of continuing ways to uh, innovate. I, In that vein, I'd like to ask you if you could give, whether it's for people who know you or those that don't, a preview of coming attractions. Where, where do you want to move your work next as an innovator um, in increasing the student success of the kinds of students you're trying to serve. But lots of this is yet a frontier for you that you haven't addressed that you'd like to. There, there, and, I, and I think I mentioned uh, the, the, the desire to have this uh, system wide within our system of 25 colleges to the extent possible in terms of that work. Uh, uh, There there are a number of areas of interest to me. I think uh, part of it is is my involvement with uh, the work that's going on with the American Democracy Project, with um, uh, the American Association of State Colleges and Universities and the Lumina Foundation. I am part of a group of provosts they invited to participate in how we expand the work at minority-serving institutions. I'm also on the design team for that work. What I what I what I, I think you probably have heard me say this, maybe not. I and it's very much tied to uh, my um, journey as an immigrant student to this country, and it's this very notion of. Um, what is what is it about this country that attracts it? You know, attracts people to it from all over the world. And how do we continue to uh, secure the promise of democracy and show that everyone participates in 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 that uh, in in a way that is uh, concrete? And, and and part of me does tell me that uh, America's greatest export to the rest of the world is not so much technology and all of these other things we talk about, but America's greatest uh, export to the rest of the world is this notion of the rule of law. And where do you begin to engage in those conversations is in how we engage our students 
in this concept of, of civic education and civic um, uh, mindedness. And to the extent that they don't participate, because if you look at the data, you see this, this downward trend. To the extent that they don't participate in that, then uh, uh, the nation becomes harmed. Our democracy is as is at uh, is at a, at a threat, and so part of the work that I I continue to engage in, and certainly would want to see expanded to other places, is this work with the American with the ASCU and Lumina. Uh, we have an initiative as well on my campus that we we are implementing called Atlas you know, anchored in the liberal arts and really it's really re-engineering our general education through transformative texts that also engage our students on this, in this notion of civic mindedness uh, that we have, uh, we, we have had uh, funding support from the Teagle Foundation uh, on, uh, with a planning grant and we're working on a much larger grant with them to scale, scale the work. So that's really what are it? How do we build, you know, a vibrant democracy by making sure that all of our students, all of our populations, are involved in that work? Uh, you know, for the sustenance of a vibrant democratic uh, society. I am so pleased to hear you say that. How all the work you've done up to this point is really a foundation for that work, and I, I agree with you. The most important mission of our colleges and universities is to support the present and future of our democracy. I, I've long thought every time I visit New York and if I fly in the daytime and I fly over the Statue of Liberty and I think of the City University of New York as the Statue of Liberty in effect for you know the kind of students that you're serving. And um, I am going to commit to uh, staying in touch with you about your work on this um, democracy uh, focus uh, this is partly why I was wishing that you might ultimately uh, be able to communicate some of this philosophy to the red states, and not, not only to the uh, the educational institutions there. I think they they buy into this too, but uh, many of their citizens don't yet fully appreciate the significance of this. And I'm wondering too if you know how, how many of our fellow educators who did not come to this work as immigrants, how many of them have the could have the appreciation that you do for what is ultimately our most important purpose. And I think this was something about you that attracted me to you and your work in the first place is that I just knew that you uh, were really focused on what fundamentally matters most for our institutions and our students. And uh, I, I would hope that our podcast series can inspire uh, more people who are searching for their own journey destinations to think in ways that are similar to you. So I, I want to thank you for participating in this conversation. And um, I just, I, I know you have so much more you're going to contribute in addition to what you already have. Thank you and, so much. Uh, so um, I will be following up with you to, you know, hear about these next steps. And uh, so if uh, anybody wanted to follow up with you, Dr. Nwasu, how would they do that? How do they find you? Thank you very much. They can find me uh, at Lehman College, and my email is peter.ngosu at lehman.cuny.edu, and uh, they, can, they can send me a message there, and I'll be able to respond. Yes. Well, again, thank you so much. 
thank you so much. Um, thank you. I'm so glad I asked you to do this and I've learned from you and I have a lot to learn. And in that I have much in common with, with our listeners. Thank you very best much. Best wishes to you, Provost Monson. Thank you so much for having me and uh, best wishes to you as well. Thank Show you. those shoes to more students now, okay? I will. Show those I shoes. Will. I will. I will absolutely. Thank you so much again for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us for Office Hours with John Gardner. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Gardner Institute, and we wish to thank our guests and the entire team who make this podcast possible.